Welcome to another edition of Perfect Night In. I'm your host, Neil Perriman, and if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash perfect night in. I would really appreciate it. Anyway, today's guest is Tim Worthington, who not only hosts the Looks Unfamiliar podcast, he's also written a number of books, including Fun at One, the story of comedy at BBC Radio One, and Can't Help Thinking About Me, where Tim explains how he became an expert on the clangers accidentally on purpose. So, without any further ado, let's meet Tim. Hi Tim, welcome to Perfect Night In. Hi Neil, how are you? I'm fine, and uh, thanks for coming along. I usually ask people at this point to describe the location of their perfect night in, but every single person I've asked so far has said a sofa. So unless you've got something more exciting than a sofa, we'll just move on. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I've always, always wanted one of those big 60s leather reclining armchairs. But that's basically a sofa, isn't it? It's kind of. I, I think that part of the format's going to be ditched. <laughs> Okay, Tim, so it's seven o'clock and um, the first programme you've chosen, I'll be honest here, not only have I never seen it, I've never even heard of it. My choice is Ski Boy, which I'm not surprised you never heard of this because I'm not aware of many people who've ever actually seen it. It was a, an ITC series from 1974, which this was at the point when ITC, you know, they'd had all those big hits in the 60s, all the Jerry Anderson stuff, The Prisoner, they'd had The Persuaders a couple of years before that, but by kind of getting towards the mid-70s, they were just absolutely falling apart. And they came up with all these high-concept ideas that were predicated either on a location or a star without much format, and it didn't work. And Ski Boy was one that, it bombed to the extent that it's just been completely forgotten about. I mean, I've seen, in inverted commas, complete guides to ITV action serials that haven't mentioned it. I still don't understand what he's doing. He's digging through the snow to the ice. You ready for this yet? Yes. Basically, what happened was a producer called Derek Sherwin, who'd had a couple of really big successes. He reinvented Doctor Who when it moved into colour. He cast John Pertwee, created Unit, all that sort of thing. He moved straight on from there to do a revival of the BBC's radio detective, Paul Temple, on TV. It was kind of an updated, modernised thing, and that was a huge success as well. And skiing was the real exotic thing at that point. It was what was always featured on World of Sport. You know, uh, everyone still thought Toblerones were exciting. Uh, A lot of adult films were set in ski lodges. And he basically just thought, we need a series about skiing, and went to Lou Grade, who said, well, that sounds great. I'll give you some money to make it. The problem is they didn't really have much of a format. So they had a boy who, you know, was a ski instructor who solved crimes. Now, what crimes do you actually have at a ski lodge? What's going on? There's been an accident. Oh, I'm sorry. Anything I can do? Not unless you're a bomb disposal expert. Oh, what? The episode I've picked is one of the ones without a crime, which is Buried Menace, where they're clearing a path for some ski routes and find an exploded World War II bomb. And it's all about their attempts to rescue one of the instructors who's trapped under it, while Ingrid Pitt is a journalist trying to sell the story to her magazine back home, and they don't want her to. Hey, look, I thought I told you to... What? Give me that. Hey, wait! It's my story, it's worth money! Is it worth two people's lives? But what I really like about it is it looks amazing, and... 
It's a you know, you've got people like Ingrid Pitt and guest roles, but the actual main cast were cast because they could ski rather than you know, particularly for their acting prowess. Ski Boy himself is played by Steve Hudis, who was the son of Norman Hudis, the carry on creator, who I don't think he ever actually wanted to act. He's very successful. As you know, a stuntman, as a director, he was always behind the scenes, but this was his one real acting gig. And I can't even remember her name, but the girl who played Sadie, his sidekick, I don't think was ever in anything else ever. And they do all do their own stunts in this, but they also do their own dialogue. Boy, when that ticking started again... It was so quiet down there, we could almost hear you breathe. And I just managed to get the film in before the contact closed. Yeah. A while back, I got asked to do a series of features on Forgotten TV. It had to be about things that were big in their day that since been forgotten, like Kelly Monteith, like Small World, the ITV comedy drama, things like that. I thought Ski Boy was perfect for that. I did a feature based on what little I could find out about it. And then somebody got in touch with me saying... On the basis that you don't know where they came from, would you like some episodes of Ski Boy? Because that's the thing, it's not been repeated since. I think it was on Sky in the 80s, and it's never been on DVD. Although, if anyone wants to put it out on DVD, I know someone that can write the booklet for you, so hello. But uh, I watched them, and I was just blown away by it, the fact that it was big, dumb fun. This amazing thing where, for 22 minutes... People just whizzing round in the Alps, trying to catch smugglers and so on. And, and the music is astonishing as well. It's a really strange sort of disco-funk hybrid. It sounds incredibly like Air, the later synth band. Tim, you had me in Ingrid Pitt. Anyway, Ski Boy takes up to 7.30, and I'm pleased to say that your next choice is a programme I've actually seen. Next choice is Rising Damp, and in particular, the episode Things That Go Bump in the Night. Because I love Rising Damp, I'm a great defender of it. I think it's interesting that people try to tar it with the, you know, uh, it was alright in brush, but it doesn't work because it always presented the opposing view of bigotry and so on. You know, you've got in Bigsby, you've got a character that goes back and forth between appearing ignorant and bigoted and then getting very defensive of Philip when they meet real racists and that sort of thing. But I like the fact that you had the main cast, but you had these other characters who also lived in the house that came in and out of it, I assume as and when they were required by the script. You know, because obviously there were episodes where Eric Chappell had thought, well, Alan can't really do that. We need Spooner, the wrestler, in this episode. But this is one of the episodes with Brenda, who's the the artist model, who's kind of very coarse, a bit like a proto-ladette. Uh, And it's the one where they try to convince Rigsby that the house is haunted. And it doesn't matter how many times I watch it, even though I know exactly what's going to happen, I still find it incredibly funny. Shh! Oh, sorry. Are you there? I'm sitting next to you. Shut up, Rigsby. Are you there, Lady in Grey? Do you wish to speak to us? Not once for no, and twice for yes. Hey, come on, which one of you did that? How could we? We're holding hands. Now, come on. (laughs) Who is it you wish to speak to? God, I hope it's not me. Is it Rigsby? 
tell her about. Come on, Richard. Rising Thump was one of the first things that I was aware that the adults liked. It was the sort of thing that I'd always see bits of if it was all on, say, like a bank holiday or Christmas Eve or whatever. Looking back, that was probably, a lot of those showings were probably tributes to Richard Beckinsale, of course, which I, I had no idea at the time that, you know, Alan had died. I remember it was something that was increasingly allowed to watch, and then I was really excited when Channel 4 repeated it, I think, in the mid-late 80s, and then again in the early 90s. I was really excited about that, particularly when there's the one that they had to pretend to wipe because it accidentally libeled an MP. And then that showed up in the Channel 4 repeats in this smudgy, smeary conversion with bits of it blanked out. And that, that was really exciting for me, you know, just irrespective of how much I like the programme. But I don't think there's a bad episode of it. People say it loses a bit in Series 4. I don't think so. And I even quite... Now, I use the word quite, but I quite like the film. Prince, but you surely don't believe all this rubbish. Uh, oh, uh, well, all right, all right. Take the werewolf. By day, a humble banker, but at night, starts turning rather hairy, takes off his white collar and coverings, dashes out onto the common. You probably take him for an Alsatian. <laughs> I wouldn't take him for anything. I don't believe in the supernatural. Oh, yes, you won't go through the churchyard late at night, though, will you? Uh, not with all those bodies lying about. It doesn't worry me, Rigsby. I'm a man of medicine. When they're dead, they're dead. They certainly are when you finish with them. <laughs> Oh, yes, you're oh, very brave in here, aren't you, with these lights? Wait till you get out there in the corridor under the 40 watts. It'll be different there. It's an old house, as you know, very dark, strange things can happen. There's been a lot of unhappiness here, you know. I've got news for you, Rigsby. There still is. <laughs> OK, Tim, now your 8 o'clock choice is probably as far away from rising damp as it's possible to get. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from... Everyone we yeah, my choice is The Monkees, which is a series that really means a great deal to me. And so many others, I can still remember the first time that I was really aware of it was there were BBC repeats in, I think, maybe 1979, 1980, when I was still extremely young. But I remember seeing this programme and not being able to work out whether it was new, whether it was old, or why it hadn't. Why hadn't I heard of these people before? I'm finding it hilariously funny. I think the first one I saw, I did work out well about was Monkeys a la Mode, the fashion magazine spoof one. But the one that really stayed with me was The Chaperone, where Davy, who was always my favourite of the Monkeys, wants to date a girl whose father's very protective and says... She can only come to their party if it's a chaperone, prompting Mickey to dress up in drag. And uh, he, he, he inhabits the part a little too convincingly and starts to believe it himself. And there's a sequence in it that myself and my sisters used to reenact for years afterwards, where he imagines being on a gondola, being serenaded, you know, going, Mickey, Mickey! And then it cuts to the other monkeys going, Mickey, Mickey! Which, you know, it doesn't sound as funny when I describe it, but that sort of thing... When you're that age, but it wasn't just the the comedy; it was the songs as well. Though you've played at love and lost, and sorrows turned your heart to frost, I will melt your heart again. Remember the feeling as a child when you woke up and morning smiled. This time you felt like you did. Every single song in the Monkees seemed to be absolutely fantastic. I mean, in this episode, you've got. This just doesn't seem to be my day, and you just may be the one, which are both great songs, but it's also got Take a Giant Step, which is the the B-side to The Last Train to Clarksville. I mean, I had no idea about that at the time, but 
It's this weird kind of almost psychedelic country and western monkey song with a lot of jangling in it, a lot of echo, sort of thudding drums and so on. I remember being absolutely gobsmacked by that as a very young child because this, this was in the days when you didn't hear, you still didn't hear 60s music everywhere. You know, it was less than 20 years old. They felt like they're from another age. It felt like they had no connection to the here and now. That still seemed like really remote, you know, like absolutely. And the monkeys being American were even more kind of at a remove. And I was fascinated by them for a very long time. I remember pestering for a Christmas present. There was a Reader's Digest compilation called Here Come the Monkeys, which had a really small photo of them in the front and like the monkeys logo again and again and again in the background. That was the first time I really heard a lot of their music. I bought Head when it came out on VHS, having which is their feature film, having read about it for a long time before that. I was just really obsessed with the monkeys, an obsession that's never quite faded, really. Oh, I don't understand any of this. It's just that I wanted to see your daughter. Well, why didn't you say so? I'm not an unreasonable man. Well, I guess all's well that ends well. There's only one thing that bothers me, though. What? Do I gotta give back the ring? <laughs> I love the Monkeys TV series, but there were a lot of episodes where they're testing a new invention. <laughs> like, a, like a psychedelic last of the summer wine, really, in the Seymour era. But, but the other interesting thing is that, as, as with another of my later choices, we mainly know the Monkeys from a very different form. Like the way, to me, Top Cat will always be Boss Cat. The BBC prints of the Monkeys, which really battered by the time kind of we would have seen them you know they all even series one had the series two opening titles on there were all kinds of countercultural gags and cutaways and so on were removed sometimes entire songs were removed and i'm still not sure why and i do wonder what those edits were actually like you know if you saw them again now how different would they be while you're pondering that, Tim, can I get you a snack before we start your next choice? What would you like? I will have Pringles because I have had some really good times with Pringles that I'm possibly not going to share, but yeah, they're always useful for, for breaking the ice. What a taste you can't resist. No other chip tastes quite like this. Uh, the Pringles can't stop. Uh, the Pringles can't. You've got the snack you like too much. For a whole lot of taste, try the Pringles crunch. You got Which flavour would you like? And um, while we're on the subject, what's your favourite flavour of Monster Munch? My favourite flavour of Monster Munch has to be sizzling bacon. Right, well, while you get stuck into your crisps, I'll start your 8.30 choice, which is one of the most terrifying programmes ever made. Next choice is the Banana Splits, which is another programme that, again, we only really know... Well, I can't say we only really know, because, you know, now you can only get sort of the original versions. But for years, there were just, again, those BBC prints where... I'm not sure when the BBC stopped showing Series 2 of the Banana Splits. They were just showing Series 1, which had that really weird opening title sequence you don't see anymore, where it had them meeting the public at a theme park. It, uh, interspersed with clips of them performing and jumping on and off a climbing frame I seem to remember in kind of monkeys-esque disappearing, reappearing motion 
And again, you know, they were reordered. I think some songs were missing. By the time I would have seen it, the Danger Island live action sections would have gone. I know they were they were in earlier showings, I found that out, but they were removed, I assume, for rights reasons by the early eighties. But I loved the banana splits. Again, it was like it was like another weird universe at that point. You know, this wasn't just sort of four mop tops climbing around. This was what what were they even supposed to be? You know, is, is Snorky actually supposed to be an elephant? It's not like any elephant I've ever seen. It's time for official banana splits club business. Bingo, as official temporary second banana, please check attendance. Yeah, but we all know who's here, Fleeg. Why don't I just check off the names of the members who aren't here? Hey, how are you going to do that, Bingo? Well, I'll just say, all the members of the banana splits who aren't here, do not raise your hands. <laughs> What people never mention is the cartoon inserts in it. The Arabian Nights, where, you know, they, they had all these incredible superpowers. And, you know, again, it's something made my sister said for years was... Size of an elephant! We always pick size of an elephant for some reason, never anything else. And there was Zazoom the donkey, where... Yeah, it'd always be the guards say, ah, this little four-legged fool, he is no threat to us, and pull his tail, and he'd go, <laughs> sort of spin round, knocking them all over. And that was very sort of fun to reenact on the playground. But I, I loved those cartoons as much as I loved the banana splits themselves. And, I mean, I've picked what, I, it's not actually the first episode in America, but it was the first when the BBC used to show them, which it had a song in it called Wait Till Tomorrow. Which is as good as anything the Doors ever did. It's by the Banana Splits. Gliding through the meadows all through the night. It had this amazing film where they were like sort of running up and down a log flume, and I think it's in a theme park called. Was it, might be called Six Flags Across America, which is a kind of Frontiers Days themed theme park in the 70s. I don't know if it exists anymore, but they were just herring around being chased by the steam trains and so on. That's like a hard day's night. I don't want to say hard day's night on acid, because that's such a, you know, cliche thing to say. You know, the later Beatles films were a hard day's night on acid anyway, but it's... They were like psychedelic wombles. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Or a monkeys that didn't want to play their own instruments because I don't know. I think it was actually session people like Al Cooper that played on the, on the Banana Splits recordings. I mean, it clearly wasn't them in the actual costumes. <laughs> oh, you've completely ruined it for me now, Tim. Anyway, the Banana Splits takes us up to nine o'clock, and your next choice is. <laughs> My next choice is Mr. Ben, which I think is a series that, you know, there's a lot of kind of reappraisal of the lunchtime children's shows from mainly more the BBC ones. The ITV ones don't get remembered as much for some reason. Mr. Ben seems to be left behind a bit. You know, you see him using advertising campaigns and so on. But nobody really talks about what a great little programme it actually is. And how, you know, it was clearly made on a shoestring by people who didn't really know what they were doing, you know, and that's not liable. I think David McKee's actually said, you know, I didn't know how to animate. I just (laughs) shoved things around. One of the main attractions for me, the reason I've picked in particular 
the episode The Balloonist, where, you know, he, he gets one of those balloonist costumes that they have in every costume hire shop you ever go in. When, as if by magic, the shopkeeper appeared. Good morning, sir, he said. How nice to see you again. What would you like to try on today? What about this one, said Mr Ben. Good, said the man. See if it fits. And uh, it takes part in the balloon race with Baron Bartram, who's a... I've got to hand this he was quite an ingenious cheat. You know, like throwing birdseed on other people's balloons and so on. But uh, Mr Ben and the young man, as he's called, who's sort of a Peaky Blinders bloke in a flat cap, uh, they manage to beat Baron Bartram by... I think he punctures their balloon. And as they go down, they break off a piece of drain. There shouldn't have been drain, really, in, of that type in the era that it's set in, but that's by the by. They attach it to the balloon and use it to fuel their progress, and they beat Baron Bartram. But I love the music of Mr. Ben, which is by a jazz musician called Duncan Lamont, who's his actual sort of cheapo cash-in, you know, um, 20 super party hits albums are actually quite collectible now but the original Mr Ben score he's done a new jazzed up interpretation on it now as an album but the original soundtrack's never been released and some of it is amazing particularly if you like kind of jazz of that era which will come into one of my later choices as well but there's an amazing piece of music in this when they're actually racing the balloons Mr Ben loved the gentle movement this he thought is how the clouds must feel it's just this gliding music on it's just a trumpet with a sort of brush drum behind it and then like a I think it's a Vox Continental organ takes over for a bit playing the same melody and then it's back to the trumpet and I have this obsession with music that was really good that was made to be used once in a TV programme I mean you know nobody had any idea whether Mr Ben would be shown more than once at the time I recently wrote something about one of the highlights of the the goodies DVD box set. It's been the early episodes. You've got these astonishingly good Bill Oddie songs that could have been some of them could have been top ten hits if they'd been released as singles, but they just sat there in episodes of the goodies that I think in one case less than a million people saw one of them. Yeah, that music could have been lost forever. They shot past the Baron and gave the horse a fright. It reared in the air, threw off the rider and then rushed away, taking Baron Bartram's balloon in the wrong direction. Out of all of the episodes of Mr. Ben, I know people normally go for the Cowboy one and the Spaceman. I go for the balloonist every time, because that, just that amazing, I think it's two and a half minutes of music in the middle. If anyone out there is in the position, you know, to find the original tapes and release them, please do. I would love to hear that in full. I'll definitely buy a copy if it helps. Anyway, Mr. Ben takes up to 9.15 and your next choice, Tim, is a complete change of pace. There was a time when meadow, grove and stream, the earth and every common sight, to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. Yeah, my next choice is a complete change of direction. It's Jonathan Miller's 1966 version of Alice in Wonderland for the BBC, which caused a lot of controversy at the time because it was people were you know newspapers got on their high horse about the idea that he'd done he can't even really call it a modernized version because it really does go back to the victoriana but what was emerging then is kind of the strain the victoriana associated with you know the early psychedelic stuff just ahead of sergeant pepper kind of what people like the early pink floyd and traffic were looking towards in their music like some Doctor Who stories did around that time. 
it's a cyclical thing where you know youth cults do tend to latch on to what are now the affordable fashions that were once things that only rich people could afford like you know when i was at university it was everyone was buying what was expensive 70s sports gear at the height of the Britpop era you know all the old adidas tracksuits and all that but in the 60s you're obviously buying all these old kind of Victorian Edwardian you know military costumes you know that's what you see people like Jimi Hendrix wearing all the time and Jonathan Miller had his ear to the ground I don't imagine he was down at the UFO club watching AMM and the Purple Gang but he knew what was going on because he did this really sinister interpretation of Alice in Wonderland which weirdly if you look at because I've dug out a lot of the screaming tabloid stories about it at the time. They call it a sex version. There's nothing sexual about it at all. It's really quite odd, that. But the other thing is the soundtrack's by Ravi Shankar. Just about ahead of his Beatles association. So again, it is it very much to the ground there. It's quite odd that the first real manifestations of psychedelia on TV came from these three blokes who were from the satire boom of about four years earlier, who probably... Now, I'm not going to say they've probably never been near a hallucinogenic substance, because, you know, I'm not sure about Dunn, I'm not sure about Peter. I don't think, I don't think Jonathan Miller had, though, let's be, let's be frank about it. But this is... This, to me, is a definitive Alice in Wonderland, because it's got nothing to do with what you'd expect of Alice in Wonderland. It's like the the BBC Pinocchio from the late 70s, which I think is the only adaptation that goes back to the original novel, which is horrifying. I speak severely to my boy. I beat him when he sneezes, for he could thoroughly enjoy the pepper, if he pleases. This, I think, goes back to the original Alice in Wonderland. There's no cutesy... You know, no all singing, all dancing, no bright designs in it. It looks like a a Victorian nightmare. And that's only what it is. And the the odd thing is, there's a lot of people in it, like Eric Idle. Before he was really known at all as a small role in it, Peter Sellers is in it. Um, all kinds of, you know, really highly regarded people, but playing it entirely straight. Uh, John Bird's a footman in it. Again, you know, you'd think he'd be acting ill, but they're actually all really toned. Even Peter Cook is the Mad Hatter. Why is a raven like a writing desk, I wonder? <laughs> oh, I'm glad you've begun asking riddles. I think I can guess that one. Oh. Do you mean that you can find the answer to it? Exactly. Then you should say what you mean. I do. At least, I mean what I say. It's the same thing, you know. It isn't the same thing a bit. You might as well say that I uh, I see what I eat is the same thing as I eat what I see. You <laughs> might just as well say that I like what I get is yeah. the same thing as I get what I like. Yeah. You might as well say I sleep when I breathe is the same thing as I breathe when I sleep. Well, it is the same thing with you. There's nothing really over the top about his performance. It's quite restrained. And it's obvious that Jonathan Miller's thought, you know, that's going to have more impact if people are expecting, you know, these people to bound onto the screen, you know, Alan Bennett as well, and be over the top caricatures. And instead, they're just, their lines are said quite straight. I think that's, that's really interesting as well. Oh, no, 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 no. We quarreled last March. 
just before he went uh, mad, you know. It was at a concert given by the Queen of Hearts. I had to sing that song. Uh, twinkle, twinkle, little bat, how I wonder what you're at. You're familiar with it, doubtless. It also gets repeated quite a lot whenever there's a BBC anniversary as well. I first saw it when the BBC did TV 50 in... 1986, which is also when I first saw the goodies Kit and Kong with the different theme songs. So I've got a lot of fun memories of that repeat season. But that apparently, when that was on, because Anne-Marie Malik, who played Alice, I think was just uh, the daughter of some of Jonathan Miller's friends who quite fancied having go at acting. I think that's the case, but she didn't really pursue acting afterwards. And I believe when that repeat was on, they couldn't trace her to negotiate sort of a repeat settlement so they they just showed it and basically had help get in touch if you're out there so we can pay you and one of their neighbors like recognized her from this old photograph as alice in the newspaper and put her in touch with the bbc and who is this yes uh, who, who is this or perhaps i shouldn't ask <laughs> idiot absolute idiot You've got an absolute idiot for a son. Yes, but he's tall. He's very tall. Come along, child. Speak up. What's your name? My name is Alice. And who are these? Or perhaps I shouldn't ask. How should I know? It's no business of mine. You little hussy. Off with her head. Nonsense. Because it is something that is cited quite regularly. You know when you see sort of documentaries like with the early members of Pink Floyd talking about, you know, the early days of playing at the Roundhouse and so on, all the light shows, they do quite often mention that Alice in Wonderland. So it's clearly a big thing for people at the time. And yet the star of it was able to just walk away. Alice takes us up to 10.30 and I think the drugs have just kicked in. My next choice is something called the original Peter, and I know a lot of people listening are thinking those are just three words. I've been accused of living my life in a late 60s BBC art show, <laughs> which <laughs> I think isn't an unfair accusation, but it's fr- this is actually from 1970, but it's a, it's a weird sort of performance art piece for the BBC Two art show review, where it's a weird film piece done in it looks like television centre involving see this is why i'd wanted to see this for years involves the mike westbrook concert group who were a sort of prog jazz ensemble who kind of they got sort of bracketed in with progressive rock even though they were more jazz really but they were on dram records you know so alongside people like david bowie cat stevens al stewart armen corner you know so It was quite a departure, but they had a a reputation for early immersive multimedia stage shows. They had an album that was just about to come out called Mike Westbrook's Love Songs, which is one of my favourite albums ever, uh, where there were... A lot of them were vocal pieces featuring a vocalist called Norma Winstone, who uh, she appears on a lot of UK jazz, sort of prog jazz records from around this time. And um, they're performing in this alongside a performance art group called The Welfare State, who've been almost completely forgotten about. They were led by a guy called John Fox, who they were really championed by people like John Peel, like BBC Two, where they did these incredibly macabre stage shows. I mean, if people know them, it'll be from on the album of John Peel's Radio 1 show from the late 60s. They did a track on it called Silence is Requested in the Ultimate Abyss, alongside White Noise, who were the 
terrifying electronic rock band formed by Dean Darbyshire and Brian Hodgson from the Reaphonic Workshop with a guy called David Borhouse. It's an absolutely blood-curdling record. But this is basically the welfare state doing all kinds of odd things with jugglers and trapeze artists and so on around Mike Westbrook's band performing. And original Peter was... It's really difficult to describe him. He was kind of... I suppose you could say he was a, a prog gymnast who would, you know, come on at music festivals and do countercultural handstands and so on. And the centrepiece is his hand-balancing act, which is uh, they actually play the track original Peter behind that to close the show. obsessed with, not so much with original Peter, but with the welfare state with Mike Westbrook for a long time because there were names that, if you pick up anything like The Listener or, you know, The Guardian for the late 60s, their names are all over the arts pages all the time and then, you know who knows who they are now I've, I've always found things like that fascinating, something that's, you know, really big in its moment and once the moment's gone, nobody even remembers it. Although, ironically, uh, a couple of years ago when I mentioned I was working on something on Mike Westbrook to my father, who, he's terrible for this. Everything that, you know, you mentioned that was on television years ago, he casually remembers having watched. He even saw, you know, there was that ITV play in the late 50s when, you know, where one of the actors died during the ad break and went out live, and I think Verity Lambert stepped in to direct it. Uh, he actually watched that happening. And has first-hand memories of watching it, thinking, "What's happened to the other bloke?" Uh, but when when I said I was I was working on something about Mike Westbrook, my dad said, "Oh yeah, I saw this really strange thing he did on the BBC in the early 70s, where it was like a like a circus going on around them." I thought, "Oh." <laughs> Eventually, after much pestering from a lot of people, including myself, the the director of the film uh, put it up on YouTube. So it is, it is out there to view now, and it is as as mind scorching as I'd imagined it would be just from what little I knew about it. Because I loved the original Peter the track, and then one day I spotted in the Radio Times while looking for something else entirely that I just saw, you know that a television entertainment quote on BBC Two called The Original Peter and I thought I bet that's pretty far out and it was. It's at this time of the evening Tim I like to ask my guests if they'd like a drink. What can I get you? Uh, Well it depends really who I'm with and why but either some very very expensive whiskey or Dr Pepper. I span all the cultural spectrum there really. I love it. The unexpected taste of Dr. Pepper. You've got to try it to love it. Okay, Tim, it's 11 p.m. and it's time for your final choice. If you want one. Ladies and gentlemen, go, go for a wild, wild ride with the Watusi cats. But beware, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. 
For your own safety, see Faster Pussycat. Kill, kill. My final choice is Russ Mayer's Faster Pussycat Kill, Kill. Now, I've picked this because... I originally was going to pick a French film for the early 70s called Celine and Julie Go Boating, but A, it's nearly three hours, and B, we've just had, you know, two hours of late-night art, so, you know, let's go completely in the other direction. Wild women, wild wheels, race the fastest pussycats, and they'll beat you to death. Superwoman, belted, wild and goated. <laughs> Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, somebody once said to me, that's got ev- all of your hobbies and interests in it. It's got fast cars, it's got 60s psychedelic garage punk, and it's got Russ Mayer-esque women. So, that's absolutely true. But it's all, it's genuinely possibly my favourite film of all time. And I do have a framed original quad poster, which somebody gave me as a present once, framed in my bedroom. It's always interesting to see the reactions to that. But... It's quite odd. I mean, I'm guessing quite a lot of people who are listening will know of Russ Mayer, but won't know very much about him. And will have possibly a wrong idea in their head. You know, because there's there's this kind of idea that he was just a, you know, a dirty Mac soft porn filmmaker. And it's not really the case, because the first thing to say is he's a brilliant director. You know, you think because I've seen a lot of trash cinema from the late sixties, early seventies. The common thing they've all got is you know really long, boring takes of a scene delivered at a slow pace. And Russ Mayer's editing—it's like it's like a work of art in itself. It gets faster and shorter. I mean, they're all silly adventure films, and yes, they do all feature women with incredibly large breasts, but. There is a kind of having your cake and eating it element to it. I mean, the, the, there is a scene actually in Fast and Pussycat Kill Kill that sums it up for me. The plot of the film is there are three go-go dancers who uh, go to indulge in their hobby of drag racing. They're challenged by a very dubious alpha male and his simpering girlfriend who doesn't like the idea that Dem Uppity Birds is better at driving cars than him. Uh, they beat him in the race. He... Gets very aggressive with them. He goes to attack Vala, who's the leader, who promptly breaks his neck. Which, uh, you know, is kind of a real kind of punch the air moment. And the rest of it is about them trying to dispose of his body and keep his girlfriend quiet and make their way through the desert. But there's a bit where they pull in a gas station. Where, you know, the gas station attendant is looking down Vala's top, going on about how he wants to see America... And she just like glowers at me and says, "You won't find it down there, Columbus." And you know that that is that is both sides of the argument. It's very difficult to pin down exactly what you should think. You know, your opinion of what he was up to changes by the minute. I think. I gave her a pill. She's good for another two hours. Well, you should have stuffed in the car with a friend. She's the only eyewitness. Not the only witness. But then you two couldn't really be called witnesses. Willing, helpful witnesses. People who could have stopped something from happening but didn't. In California, they're called accessories to the crime. Oh, you're cute. Like a velvet glove cast in iron. And like the gas chamber, Varla, a real fun gal. You could hardly call it a feminist film, but it's more strongly in that direction than people might give it credit for. And even down to the making of it, there was a... Varla was played by Tora Satana, who... Nowadays, she would be a huge international star. 
she was a dancer, she was a an actor. I mean, she's in things like The Man from Uncle and you know a couple of sci-fi films. She was a a decent actor, and she I think she was Elvis Presley's girlfriend at one point. She was discovered by Buster Keaton, who genuinely this isn't euphemistic gave her acting lessons because he thought she was fantastic you know she's a martial arts expert i believe she could sing a bit as well you know that's that is your your dita von Teese, your you can't really say the kardashians because you know that involves actual talent but you know people like that are world famous these days she wasn't and she kind of retired in the early 70s but when russ mayer hired her she started coming with ideas for the directions rather than just saying know your place woman he was thinking, well, she knows the dancing world. I should listen to her. And she suggested a lot of things, like that she should wear black gloves. And there's no nudity in the film at all, either. Another misconception, because she apparently said, well, these girls, you know, dance in the all together for a living. They're not going to want to give it away for free in their spare time. And he immediately changed the script. And he said later, it should have had two directors credited. It should have been me and her. And I don't know why I never worked with her again. I'll never knock muscle. But it's even better when you've got bread to enjoy it. And it's in there. Enough to buy ourselves a lot of swinging miles. Enough money to lose somebody, huh? A perfect place to lose anybody. But this little doll's our cover story. Her boyfriend was killed in a racing accident. She flipped, ran away from home. Her family's big socially and doesn't want any publicity. So they asked us to find the girl. We found her. Just like we're going to find a big hunk of that long green. Oh, that is so phony. It's almost believable. You don't have to believe it, honey. Just act it. I first saw this when Jonathan Ross had a show in the late 80s called The Incredibly Strange Film Show, where he did a... like There were documentaries on people like Herschel Gordon-Lewis and Doris Wishman and so on. John Waters, the first time I'd heard of him was in that, and I still can't believe they got away with showing some of the stuff they did on Channel 4 at 10pm. But the, the Russ Mayer one, it was, again, He Jonathan Ross was going out of his way to say these films aren't what you think. And he told the brilliant story about how he discovered it, was he was going to see Piero LeFou at the, I think at the Scala, which is a very sort of serious French film with Jean-Paul Belmondo with, guess what? His face is painted blue. That never happens in any films he's in. But he turned up on the wrong day. And Fast and Pussy Cat Kill Kill was on. And he just thought, oh, you know what? I can't be bothered going home. I'll go and see this. And he said that was when his life changed forever. That was when he really became enamored of the trash aesthetic. And he kind of gave that to me years later through this program I probably shouldn't have been watching at that age. So here's Tim Worthington's perfect night in. Ingrid Pitt joins Ski Boy at 7pm in a story about an unexploded bomb. At 7.30 in Rising Damp, Rigsby wonders if his lodging house is haunted. It's probably just Vienna itching to be let out. The Monkeys are at 8pm, closely followed by the Banana Splits at 8.30. Mr. Ben takes to the skies at 9, and that's followed at 9.15 by Jonathan Miller's celebrated 1966 production of Alice in Wonderland. 10.30 brings a prog rock interlude courtesy of the original Peter. And then Tim's final choice at 11 proves that the biggest boobs are on this podcast in Russ Mayer's Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. You'd be crazy to miss a lineup like this.
Okay, Tim, my final question for you is who would you choose, living or dead, to share your perfect night in with? Well, I think I know what a lot of people listening are expecting me to say, but do you think Karen Gillan would sit through the original Peter? And on that bombshell, thanks very much, Tim. Thank you very much. Thank you.